The story I'm about to share, I share with full permission of the individual that it's about. Uh, Last year, one of the highlights of your year, I'm sure, was Barcelona's preseason tour of the United States. Barcelona is one of the largest soccer teams in the world. They're worth a gajillion dollars, okay? And uh, they scheduled a game in July to come and play against your New York Red Bulls. And so, of course, that was a big deal for the boys' family. And so uh, we got the tickets that we needed to get to go see all the best players on Barcelona play against all the players for the Red Bulls. And, you know, it's, it's kind of an A-League versus B-League kind of a situation, or maybe A versus D. Anyway, don't worry about it, right? So, so we're, we're going to this game. And my mom and dad happened to be in town, so they were forced to attend as well. Okay, so we go to Red Bull Arena. Red Bull Arena seats like 30,000 people. Normal Red Bulls games, you have 10 to 20,000. Playoffs, 20 to 30,000, depending, right? So, but we go to this Barcelona game. Now, Sam Boys was the most excited of all of us for this uh, game. And so Sam, of course, because we're you know, Red Bulls fans, so this, you know, this is our area. So he has a lot of Red Bulls jerseys, right? But he also has a Barcelona jersey. So it did, I didn't realize this, but on the way to the game, it turns out in the car, Sam had both a Red Bulls jersey and a Barcelona jersey there. And so he's got them in the car, and we're, we're going to the game. Now, here's the deal. Every single seat in Red Bull Arena was filled. Like, this was absolute, sold out, every, every seat was filled. Driving up to the stadium, there are hordes of people not wearing Red Bulls jerseys, wearing Barcelona jerseys, Barcelona flags. We happened to pull in about the same time as the Barcelona bus. The bus was, like, being mobbed. There were people on top of it. Okay, exaggeration. But anyway, there were people all around the bus, like, cheering and, like, chasing after it down the road. I mean, this is a big deal, right? All that excitement, all that passion, all that worship, maybe? I, you know, I don't know. It was, it was a big deal. So we park in our parking spot. We're about to go in, and Sam gets out of the car, and he's got the Barcelona jersey on. <laughs> and I was a little sad. I said, Sam... Red Bulls are our team, man. Like, you have to cheer for our team. And he just kind of gave me this look like, what am I going to do? <laughs> look around, pops. <laughs> like, you know, get with the, see the crowd here, right? So, kid you not, we go into the stadium. I mean, 99% of the people there were there to see Barcelona and had Barcelona jerseys. It was certainly an away game <laughs> for the New York Red Bulls. Now, I share that story with Sam's permission. Why? To make the point that worship, passion, right, excitement, is infectious. And there we were going into the stadium and that was, it was infectious. And at that moment, there was no other choice than to choose the Barcelona jersey because there was so much excitement. There was, you, you got caught up in it. You got swept up in the passion. Worship is infectious. It draws you in. Psalm 29 is a call to worship, but it's very interesting because it's a call to worship to the angels. Now, why does that help us? Well, it helps us because worship is infectious. And in many ways, the way this psalm works is as it's a call for worship to the angels, it welcomes us to join along with them in their worship of the Lord. The idea is that you would get infected with this excitement. You would see the passion, the reasons to worship God, and you would jump on board with that. It's a call to worship, not just for the angels. It's a call to worship for us. As we think about this call to worship, we have to address the question about our hesitancy or our failure to worship. What prevents us from worshiping the God who is? Well, worship, if we define it as 
our highest love or chief value, right? Worship is when we value something more than God. That's what idolatry is, when we value something more than God. And so when we worship, we worship what we love, what we care about. And when our highest love is something other than the Lord, that obviously prevents us from true worship. You could say it this way, true worship dies by distraction. It means we've been distracted away from the Lord and we've got our attention on something else. It could be money. It could be career. It could be pleasure. It could be, uh, you know, educational achievements. It could be family, whatever, right? Whatever it is, when our highest love is something other than the Lord, that's a worship problem. It's a failure to true worship. If true worship dies by distinction, we have to ask the question, what might be distracting me today from valuing God more than anything else? Now, what we're not saying is we're not saying that those other aspects of our lives aren't important. Of course, they're important. But they really only function rightly when they are the result of worshiping God more than anything else. Something wrong with family or career or education or money. But the fact is, when we chase those things as gods, we've got a problem. True worship dies by distraction. What are we being distracted by? I think as we get into Psalm 29, a call to worship, we have to recognize where our challenge is. And so I would encourage you as we get into verses 1 and 2, just to maybe think that through for yourself. What is it that you might be pursuing more ardently, with more passion, than you are pursuing the Lord? What are you more excited about than Jesus? Let's take a look at verse 20, or chapter 29 of the book of Psalms, starting there in verse 1, and We'll think about this call to worship and and how we understand it and how it impacts us. The calling of verse 1 and 2 is, of course, to actually ascribe to the Lord worship or glory. Verse 1, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Now, some of your translations may not have ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. They may have sons of God or something like that. But there is general agreement, and I think it's right, that the reference here is to the heavenly court, the angels who are basically spending all of their time worshiping the Lord anyway. You can think about that scene in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees the revelation of God in his, his glorious temple, and as he sees him, what does he see? He sees angels around him crying, holy, holy, holy. And so here, this is basically the peps, the pep talk for those angels in the presence of the Lord in heaven. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. What? What do we do? Ascribe to him. What are we supposed to say about him? Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. He starts off in verse one. Glory, value, worth. And when we're talking about the Lord who is infinite, we're talking about infinite value and worth. So the angels are called to sing praise to God because he is worth more than anything or anyone ever could be. He is that important. He is that central. And right away we see an area where we can get off course in our own personal worship of the Lord. Because we, frankly, we just underestimate the glory of God. We think God is important, but practically other things might be more important at this moment. And we underestimate the glory and strength of the Lord. God is worthy to be worshipped. The calling is clear. It's worship God. So as he calls the angels to worship God and to glorify God for his value and his strength, the idea is, of course, that we will jump on board with that. Note verse 2. It continues a similar thought. He says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. I love that. The first part of verse 2. The glory due his name. Give God credit, like worship God, because he's actually earned it. (laughs) 
Like, he's worthy of worship. Listen, so often, we value things more than they're actually worth. This happens a lot. The easiest example here is money, right? We think that money is going to meet our ultimate needs and satisfy us and give us peace to sleep at night and so on and so forth, but it can't bear the weight that we often give it. We give it more glory than it's actually due. But with God, you can never give God more glory than he's due because he's due all of it. And when he says in verse 2, ascribe to the Lord glory do his name, the idea of the name of God brings about his reputation. We, we said it and we prayed it in the psalm. Uh, Forgive my iniquity for your name's sake. Like, Lord, act for your name's sake. And the things that God does in creation by creating the universe and by acting within creation, that shows his greatness. It shows his value. So you could rehearse the different things that God has done for his namesake. Again, creation of the universe, absolutely, right? Um, the, the creation of the promise for the rescuer, the, the reality of God's work in Israel, rescuing the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, you know, gifting to them the, his law and giving them instruction on how to live in a way that honors him continuing to show his faithfulness and love in spite of their failures. Of course, bringing the Messiah to earth and having Jesus actually take on flesh for us. We could go on and on, right? And talk about all these different ways that God's glory is on display. His name, has his reputation has been established through his acts. He says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Well, we could never overdo that. Verse 2, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Worship the Lord because of the beauty of his holiness. The beauty of his distinction from creation. The thing that happens with idolatry is so often we worship things that, that are created, right? That's the problem. But when we worship the God who is, who has uncreated, right? Who is the creator. When we think about worshiping God in that sense, there's this reality of not just recognizing that he's different from creation, recognizing that he's holy, that he's distinct, but then recognizing that in that distinction, he is truly beautiful. We, we have to understand when we read the scriptures that beauty is not merely in the eye of the beholder. Have you been told that? Some of us were told that a lot because we're not beautiful. Um, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? That's a, that's a thing. And in some degree, taste is subjective, so that's a thing. But ultimately... If we're going to take the Bible seriously, we have to recognize that true beauty is objective because only God is infinitely beautiful. True beauty is, has to be objective. And we're called to worship God because of the beauty of his holiness. Because when we see God rightly for who he is as being other than creation, without sin, without flaw, without failure, without limitation, when we see God for who he is, that is true beauty. And so here, the calling to the angels is worship God. And brothers and sisters, the calling to us is to worship God. Worship God. He is worthy. Worship God because he's glorious. Worship God because of his infinite strength. Worship God because of what he's done in creation. Worship God because... (laughs) Because he's beautiful in his holiness and distinction. Worship God because he's worthy. And you could even say he alone is worthy, right? You could add that to your notes. But worship God because he is worthy of your worship. You know, so often we're so pragmatic, right? And what we think is we think, well, there's no time for me to value God today because I have all these things I have to get done. And that temptation is a lie. 
Because whatever it is that we're dealing with in life, we cannot substitute or shortchange our worship of the Lord. There's no way to glorify God by not glorifying God. How's that for deep, you know, on a Sunday morning? There's no way to glorify God by not glorifying God. So we can't say, well, uh, I'm going to get to the God thing later, but I've got to deal with it. That doesn't mean, of course, we don't deal with problems. Of course we deal with problems. But all the while, what do we have to do in our lives? We have to start and conduct the middle of our day and end our day worshiping God, valuing God above all else, which means practically not just singing his praise like we have been doing, but it means approaching your day with prayerful dependence on the Lord and asking the question, how can I glorify God by what I do today and how I do what I do? So I'm going to school. I'm going to work. We're going on vacation. How can I glorify God on this road trip? How can I glorify God in this project I'm doing at work? How can I glorify God at, at school, in this class, with this, whatever it is the assignment is, as I'm spending time with my friends, right? How can I glorify God in that? And sometimes when we ask that question, we worship God, he is Lord is worthy, right? We ask that question, how can I glorify God? The answer is you can't glorify God by doing X, Y, or Z, Right? Because God has given us instruction in his word about how he calls us to live. And so sometimes the answer is, well, I can't participate in that because that doesn't glorify God. Whereas in many cases, we can participate in whatever it is. We just do it in a particular way, with integrity, the way that puts Christ first in our hearts. Worship God. The calling to the angel says, worship God is the calling to us. Why? Because he alone is worthy. It's for his namesake. You could say it this way, he is what we've been looking for all along. One practical just note here to take away, I would encourage you, the phrase, the beauty of his holiness or the splendor of his holiness, that really jumps out at me because I think culturally we have moved so far past just thinking about God as beautiful. And I think it would, it would serve your soul well to take some time to meditate on why is God's holiness beautiful? Why, why is that the standard of beauty? His distinction, right? The, his sinlessness. The fact that he is the creator, not creation. Why is it that he is beautiful in that? I, I think there's a lot of room there for us to simply consider why God is beautiful. And as we even see the beauty of his, what he's done for his namesake, like in creation, for example, we can see a beautiful day. We can say, wow, praise God. This day is evidence of the goodness of our creator. But it's not the goodness of the creator. It just points to the goodness of the creator. Like his goodness is better than this beautiful day. Or we could also look to God's redemptive work, which is the pinnacle of his action in creation for his namesake. His rescuing sinners through Jesus' death on our behalf and resurrection. And as we look to his redemptive work, we can say, wow, we see the beauty of God on display in that work. His creation and building of a church, right? But even that, the goodness of the church is a reflection of his ultimate and eternal goodness. It's on display. We can, we can see, you know, it, the, the reverberation of it or the reflection of it. I mean, I don't think we take enough time to think about just how beautiful God really is. Now, don't make, don't make a mistake. We don't worship creation as God. And even we don't worship the church as God. But we see in creation and we see in his church his beauty on display. Reflections of his eternal glory. He is the best. He is the most beautiful. But of course, when we look around in creation, we don't always see beautiful days. In Psalm 29, David takes a turn here and he actually goes to a part of creation that can be a little scary sometimes. 
And he talks about how that actually even is fuel for worship. And it motivates, should motivate the angels and even us to worship the Lord. He's talking about the storm. Watch verse 3 of Psalm 29. David goes on and says, The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord above the vast water. The voice of the Lord in power. The voice of the Lord in splendor. Now, if you just pause here, right here, he introduces a theme in the psalm of the voice of the Lord. And David connects the voice of the Lord to thunder, okay? Thunder in a thunderstorm. Now, here's the deal. Um, This connection is biblical. In Exodus 19, when God was giving his law to his people, uh, we have a record there that the, the sound of the voice of the Lord was like thunder. And of course, he manifested his presence in a cloud there on the mountain. And so the idea of a storm kind of being up on the mountain and hearing this thunder, the Israelites were like, we can't handle hearing the voice of the Lord because it was like, it was like massive thunder is how they heard it, right? So that is a biblical concept that the voice of the Lord is, is like thunder. David here keys in on that. And he says, let's think about that for a minute. Because thunder can be really scary. I, I don't know about you. Thunder, um, it, it can get you, right? And I thought, I grew up in California. I thought I knew what thunder was. Oh, was I mistaken. <laughs> because after I moved away from California, I moved to Texas. And I kid you not, uh, I think it was the first week we were in Texas. So we're, we're in this, this apartment there. And this, this thunder, this Texas thunderstorm, Texas-sized thunderstorm rolls through the Dallas area, and I am not exaggerating this, okay? Um, the fact of the matter is, this storm hits in the middle of the night, and I, I don't know, it was one or two in the morning, and the thunder was so loud, it literally woke me up and knocked me out of bed. Like, that's how loud it was. Thunder's electricity in the air, right? It heats up certain part, parts of the air. When the hot air hits the cold air, it you know, makes this big boom. I mean, that's scientifically what it is. I don't care what it scientifically is. It's scary, I mean, when it's right over your head, and we've had a few good storms roll through in the last couple of weeks here in North Jersey, and, you know, sometimes that thunder's right by your house, and you're like, whoa, that was a little much. That got me there. But when you think about the, the resonation of that sound and thunder and the way it kind of shakes your soul, it feels like, David says, when you hear that, think about it. That is like the voice of the Lord. Notice again, verse 3. The voice of the Lord is above the waters, The God of glory thunders. The God of infinite worth and value. He thunders in his voice. The Lord above the vast water. The voice of the Lord in power. The voice of the Lord in splendor. David envisions a thunderstorm rolling in off the Mediterranean. And the interesting thing in Israel is from the coastal areas and even up into the Judean foothills, you can see uh, out into the Mediterranean. And so when those storms are coming, you see them long before they're there. And you could almost envision seeing those dark clouds coming on the water and getting closer and closer to land. Then you can see those storms coming off of the water and bringing the rain and the severe thunder. And when when that happens, David says, it's just, that's just like the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord in power in verse four, the voice of the Lord in splendor, beauty. It's beautiful. It's so terrible, right? David says, that's the voice of the Lord. And when you hit that storm, you need to be reminded that when God speaks, it should reverberate in our souls, just like we're physically shaking from that thunder. He goes on, verse five, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. Cedars of Lebanon is the Old Testament version of the redwoods of California. You know, these big, massive trees that have a reputation for being so big and strong. And yet here, David says, the voice of the Lord shatters those 
those trees, like a storm goes through and, and topples big trees and lightning strikes the tre- trees and shatters them in an instant. And he says, that's the voice of the Lord. That's how powerful the voice of our God is. Verse 6, even shakes the ground like in an earthquake. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Syrian is an old school Phoenician name for Mount Hermon in northern Israel. A very large mountain. Uh, goes up to elevation 9,000 feet. So he's like, he shakes the mountains is the idea. That's how strong the voice of the Lord is. He shakes the mountains. Again, he makes Lebanon, the whole nation, just shake and, and, and like an earthquake, right? Verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. Now we're talking about lightning. Verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Kadesh is in southern Israel. It's like flat desert area. So he says the Lord shakes that place too. From the highest heights of Mount Hermon down to Kadesh, all in between, the Lord shakes it with his voice. And his voice, when he utters things, you know, lightning comes out of his mouth. Like that's what the storm pictures, the power of the voice of the Lord. Verse 9, difficult Hebrew here. Let's work it through. But it's the same analogy. The voice of the Lord, and many English translations will say, makes the deer give birth, like the CSB does. That's weird. Let me talk about it, okay? The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. Okay, the wording for makes the, for makes the, the deer give birth, like by changing one vowel, it means, it means the Lord shakes the forests. And I think that makes a lot more sense contextually given the parallel line in the Hebrew poetry. So I think that that line actually, I think that's the way I would prefer to translate it. But either way, whatever makes the deer give birth means, but if he shakes the trees and strips the woodlands bare, the idea, of course, is that in the storm, as the storm rolls through or an earthquake or whatever, and it, and it shakes the earth and the lightning strikes the trees, right? And all this stuff is going on and the forest is shaking, right? All of that is evidence in that storm of the power and glory and grandeur of God. Specifically, the voice of the Lord. And then in verse 9, he resumes the call to worship to those angelic beings. He says, in his temple, all cry glory. This is not in conflict with Isaiah 6, crying holy, holy, holy. He's saying all in his temple, when, when those angelic beings who are in the heavenly court, okay, in the throne room of God, what do they do? They're crying glory, holy, He's beyond us. He's worthy. He's worthy of worship. This picture of the storm, right, being the embodiment of the power of God and the voice of the Lord, David says this should motivate us to worship. See, we worship God because he's worthy, first of all. But secondly, we worship God because he is all-powerful. There's a recognition here of the power and strength of God specifically. And the storm is a beautiful picture of that. The thing that we have to recognize, of course, is that storms scare us. They do knock us out of bed sometimes in the middle of the night. But the fact is that while the storms may scare us, they teach us something about God's character. They show us his power. Yes, the storm is a manifestation of God's greatness, and it's meant to inspire worship of him. It's meant to inspire worship. So what should we do with Psalm 29? Let the storm fuel worship. Let the storm fuel worship. Let the storm teach us about the greatness of God and his power. When you, when you face a storm, when you, when you have an actual experience of God's power in nature, there's a recognition there that his power goes well beyond the storm. It goes beyond just the manifestation of his power in nature. Nothing can stop the power of our triune God. So often, I think, in life, we're too confident in ourselves. We overestimate our ability, our power, and we underestimate the power of God. 
Of course, sometimes we're not overestimating our power. We're frankly just discouraged. We're afraid and anxious when the storm is rolling through. And at this point, I think the storm picture isn't just about a physical storm, right? We think about a financial storm coming through. We think about a struggle in our family, a difficult circumstance. And we start to think, "Uh uh-oh, here it comes. But it's almost like David says, yeah, the storms are rolling in. They're coming. But even as that diagnosis comes through, even as that bill comes through, even as that, that situation that you don't know what to do hits, we have an opportunity, rather than fear the storm, we have an opportunity to listen to and respond to the voice of the Lord. The, the term voice of the Lord occurs seven times. I'm going to try to fix this. I don't know why it's doing that. It's really bugging me. What do you think, guys? Say it again. Yeah, it could be interference. Okay, so my microphone is thundering for the voice of the Lord. Yeah, <laughs> we'll just keep going. We'll, we'll muscle through it. The, the term voice of the Lord occurs seven times in the psalm. And when we think about the voice of the Lord, right, we think about communication. But what is it that God is communicating to us? He's communicating who he is, absolutely. But he's also doing it in a way that calls us to worship. Just like thunder, right, brings with it that sense of grandness, right? That sense of, wow, there's something big going on. And it's a little scary, but it's also just kind of, you know, wow, big, right? In that moment, we have an opportunity in our lives to hear the voice of the Lord. Now, thankfully, we don't only hear thunder. God has gifted us his word. So in a very real sense, we take his word, and as we open his word gifted to us by his spirit, we hear the voice of the Lord. But here's the question. The question is this, if God, in the middle of a thunderstorm, if you heard the audible voice of God, like Israel did in Exodus 19, and God said, hey, Jim, hey, Susie, stop doing this and start doing that. Look at me, turn and do this, right? And called you to specific things and said things audibly, if that happened to you, and your soul was shaking at that moment, physically and spiritually, right? If that's what was going on, we would be blown away. We would say, oh, wow, glory to the Lord. And we would be transformed perhaps by that moment. And yet the question is, why don't we respond to the Lord from when we read it? Why don't we have that same level of respect and awe for the voice of the Lord as he gives us clear instruction on who he is and who we are and what he's called us to? Yes, be blown away by the thunder as it pictures the power of the voice of the Lord and his glory. But dear brothers and sisters, let's not be fools. And think that's the only place you're going to hear from God. The fact is, he's spoken to us so clearly in the gift of his word. And even as Jesus is the word that became flesh, when we look to Jesus, what should we see? We should see the glory of the Lord on display. That's what John means in John 1.18. He talks about how no one has seen God at any time, but the, the Son of God, he has made him manifest. He has revealed him, revealed God to us. So we look to Jesus and we see the glory of God on display. Really, when we think about the the storm analogy here, it should drive us to fear the Lord with a healthy fear. A fear that recognizes his beauty and his glory and his power. So often when we struggle with sin, we simply aren't respecting the voice of the Lord. In our culture, it's a big deal, right? The big deal is, I know the Bible says blank, But everybody knows blank, right? I know the Bible says you shouldn't do blank or you shouldn't have this attitude, whatever. But you know what? God's kind of old-fashioned, and so we're going to update him a little bit, right? Or, but everybody else is doing blank. 
God calls me to X, everybody else is doing Y. And there's immense peer pressure to downplay the significance of the voice of the Lord and to make our voice or the voice of my friends or the voice of people my age say, well, they're the ones that really know what's going on. <laughs> Listen, I, I don't know your friends, but their voice doesn't thunder. And they can, they can be helpful, absolutely, and they can be a good gift from God, but they're not worthy of eternal glory and worship. And sometimes you have to look at the people that are around you and you have to say, I know everybody else is watching this or doing this or chasing this, but I am listening to the voice of the Lord. And the voice of the Lord thunders. I think there's a takeaway here to ask the question, am I listening to the voice of the Lord the way it deserves to be listened to? That's a worship question. And again, this, this psalm is designed to help us fear the Lord in a healthy way. But it's not just about fearing the Lord. Watch verse 10 and 11. In this concluding stanza here in the psalm, notice how David focuses now on a different aspect of God's character and his, his worth, his glory. Verse 10, he says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned king forever. Just pause at verse 10 there, okay? Seems like a little random, but we had the storm reference. And in ancient Near Eastern uh, Canaanite theology, you had this, this idea that certain gods were associated with the water and the seas and chaos. So you have, the, I've told you this a million times, so stop me if you've heard it, but the Canaanite god Yom, right, is the god of the sea. And he's the god who's over chaos. And so the sea is scary in pre-modern times. It's scary today, to be honest. But, um, you know, so you have this reality of, of thinking about people going out on the sea and it's, it's so uncertain and you don't know where the storms are going to come from, et cetera, et cetera. And so here's this Canaanite god, Yom, and he's like the one in charge of the sea. Well, Psalm 29, David says, let's just be really clear. Yom isn't in charge of anything. The fact is it's the Lord who's enthroned. But he doesn't say just the sea. He says the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. That's the same term for the flood that's used in Genesis 9, where God promises never to flood the earth again, right? To Noah, and he gives the sign of the rainbow. Well, what's the, what's the significance of that? The idea is that God is enthroned over the chaos that we endure. That God is enthroned over the chaos that we endure. He sits enthroned over the flood. He sits enthroned king forever. You don't have to fear the chaos I think there's a recognition here that life does include a fair amount of chaos. Just see the, okay, the, the chaos that can, can ensue in life, the ups and downs, the unexpected things that go on. But the fact of the matter is, in those moments of chaos, we can panic, we can rely on self, we can worship self, we can worship something else. But all the while here, David says, it's the Lord who sits enthroned over the chaos. He's still God. Worship God, he is worthy. Worship God. He is all-powerful. We underestimate his power. But worship God because he is sovereign. He is enthroned. That's the picture here. He is sovereign. Watch verse 11. There's a payoff for his people. This is why it's not just about the angels. We know it's not just about angels. Watch verse 11. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Well, which is it? we have or chaos, or do we get peace? And the answer is yes. It's not a promise that there's not going to be floods in the sense of minor difficulties that we face, chaos circumstances. It's not a promise that we're going to face challenges. The promise here, though, is that the Lord 
is all-powerful, gives his people strength. People who rely on God are able to walk through trials. I cannot tell you the number of times, especially in hospital visits, where, where people will talk about how the fact that their trust in Christ trial blows away the nurses the minds of the nurses they can't fathom the, the the person sharing the room or whoever and they're like i can't believe you're enduring this you know and making it through it without you know losing your mind and the, and the answer always rely, always comes in the fact that we rely on the god who is sovereign who sits enthroned over the flood i don't know when your flood's going to hit but i do know that the lord gives his people strength and you'll never regret relying on him of course the lord blesses his people with peace Again, I think the idea here is in the middle of the storm, the thunder, the rain, the flood, whatever it is, the Lord gives his people peace. Why? Because they are resting and trusting in him. They're not subject to their circumstances. Rather, they can can endure by faith. The call to worship here is clear because God is worthy. Yes, because he's all-powerful. Yes, but specifically also, and maybe most importantly, because he's sovereign. Because he's sovereign over your storm. So where is your chaos today? Where is your trouble? Figure it out, right? What is it that's bugging you? And then ask the question, who is the Lord? What has the voice of the Lord said? See, in this moment, we see worship fueling faith. By God giving us strength and peace, worship fuels faith, progress in the line the believers. Worship removes fear. It does. It alleviates anxiety. It doesn't mean we won't face scary things, but worship drives us to push through that fear and to say, no, but I'm going to trust the Lord in the midst of this chaos anyway. Why? Because God is worthy, because God is all-powerful, and because he is sovereign. And in all of that, brothers and sisters, he is beautiful and good. It does not mean we understand it. We can't always explain the chaos, but we can endure it with confidence in him. We might question, well, if I was all-powerful, I would do this, not that. And if I was sovereign over it all, I would do this and not that, right? You want to know how trustworthy God is with his power? You want to know how much he loves you and how he leverages that power for his glory and your good? you look right to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because as the voice of the Lord has spoken, the voice of the Lord has also acted for us. And note the language here about the power of God that's at work specifically in our salvation from Ephesians chapter 1. I want to encourage you here from the prayer that Paul utters at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, picking up a few key concepts in verse 20. Paul says, the, he, he says, I pray that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe that the power of God is leveraged towards us for believers according to the mighty working of his strength. Mighty working of his strength, power towards us. He exercised this power in Christ. How? By raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. You want to know how God uses his power? You look at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where the voice of the Lord acted for us. So the takeaway is, will we worship? The takeaway is, will we trust him? Will we value him above all else? Will we enjoy this strength and peace that he promises here at the end of the psalm?
to that says this. He says, the more closely you cling to the Lord Jesus, the more clear and full will your peace be. I think maybe the enemy doesn't want you to understand that. Think about it. The more closely you cling to the Lord Jesus, the more clear and full will your peace be. Would you pray with me and we'll ask God to help us be people who cling to Jesus. Lord, we pause again this morning. We rejoice in the gift of your word. And we rejoice in your voice. Lord, we thank you that you are worthy of worship. Lord, we ask that you would help us as we seek to respond like the angels do. Crying out in your temple glory. Crying out holy. Crying out worthy are you of praise. Lord, help us to be people who have a sense of your beauty. The beauty, the splendor of your holiness. Lord, help us to be people who see your power on display, not only in creation, but see the greatness of your power on display in the cross of Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. Lord, help us to be people who recognize that while there is chaos, that you are sovereign over it and you are trustworthy in the midst of it. Lord, we're not strong, we're weak. And left to ourselves, we would have no peace. But you bless us with strength and peace as we rely on you. So help us to be people of faith who are truly worshipers and that we value you above everything else in each moment of our lives. Help us to value you even now as we leave for your glory and for our benefit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.